Hey guys, this is Andrew. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Michelangelo D'Agostino, who leads the machine learning team at Tegas. Tegas is a very well-known name in the investment world, though if you don't know it, it's one of the leading investment research platforms. At its core, Tegas holds more than 60,000 transcripts of conversations between investors and experts, with 2,000 more being added each month. It's an obvious statement, but there is so much potential to apply the power of LLMs to this data set to better enable users to uncover insights about markets and companies. Michelangelo and his team are very transparent about which applications they're most excited about in the near term. And we also get to talk about the long-term product vision, which I think you'll see is very exciting to think about. As always, the key takeaways from my interviews are on ctlresearch.com. But if you're here to listen to the full audio, I hope you enjoy it. Michelangelo, awesome to have you on. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to do this. As we've talked about, I think LLMs were such a gift to all that you guys are doing at Tegas. So I'm excited to get onto many different topics here. But as a starting point, I think it'd be great if you could just give the audience, the uninitiated, a bit on what Tegas does as its core business. And that scope has expanded a bit over the years. So just a bit of context before we jump in, I think would be great. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds great. What we say we're doing at Tegas is building the leading research platform for fundamental financial investors. The business itself started roughly five years ago when our co-founders, Tom and Mike Galnick, came up with a new spin on the expert research uh, model. If folks don't know what expert research is, if you're uh, an investor and you're really trying to understand as much as you can about a company, one of the things you want to do is talk to experts who know a lot about that company. So Snowflake is always the example I use for this. If you're considering investing in Snowflake, maybe you want to talk to people who use Snowflake software. You want to talk to former product people at Snowflake. You want to talk to someone who used to sell Snowflake and really understand as much as you can about that business. And so connecting financial analysts and experts has been a business for a long time. But the Tegas spin on this was to turn it into a, a subscription software business. So what we do is we arrange these expert calls. We source experts and connect them with investors and arrange those conversations. But we do it at cost. So we pay the, they pay the expert, but we don't take anything additional on top of that. On the condition that at some point, with some delay after the interview, we record, transcribe, and then post that interview on our subscription platform for any other subscriber to see. So that if you're considering investing in Snowflake, you don't have to start from scratch and do all of your own expert calls. You can come right onto Tegas and see the 200 calls that other really smart, savvy financial investors have done before you. And you can use that as a way to avoid the cold start problem, as we say in, in machine learning. And then if you still have questions, we'll help you arrange additional calls, but at least you come on board and you see all of that work that's been done already. Yeah. Awesome overview. It, it's interesting to see how transformative this has been. Expert calls have been around forever, speaking as someone who's done probably a thousand of them with many different networks. And then as soon as Tegas came out and started this new model, every other network has quickly followed because I think everyone realized how powerful this was and how much it changes the behavior for investors. I would say that my behavior has actually changed quite a bit. For the uninitiated, you're often paying in, in the pre-Tegas world call it $1,000 an hour for these calls. They're very expensive. Oftentimes you're doing them as part of deals. And part of the reason for that is economic. You're going to bill the cost of that call to the deal cost. And you're not paying for that necessarily out of your own pocket in a lot of cases. So you're much more likely to want to go spend the money when you're in the context of a given company. And therefore, you're discouraged from spending the money outside of a deal context when these calls actually might be very helpful in, in developing broad market knowledge. I mean, one of the things I find myself doing on Tegas now is just going on the platform and just reading calls that other people are doing in a very generic sense, just get a sense for how various businesses work that I may be curious about, where there might not be something that a deal to do in the near term, but 
I'm much more likely to go spend the time to go learn something than I would be with a typical expert network. Yeah, that's a great point. Kind of pushing out of that middle part of the funnel is an interesting possibility. As an investor, you're not going to pay to do 200 calls about Snowflake just to understand the the broad aggregated trends that we could provide to you that you might want to start your research cycle with. But now that we have that data, we can offer someone the opportunity to start their journey with aggregated research insights. Or then when you've invested and you want to follow up as new interviews are coming through that other investors are funding, we have watch lists and notifications so we can stay up to date over time. Yeah, 100%. And you can imagine that ongoing use case being used in a lot of other ways too. There are a lot of situations where we say, hey, this is a really special company. We haven't seen any calls yet. We don't want to spend the money to do it, but put a mark on that and changes or as calls pick up on these companies, like what's going on? It's super compelling. Maybe before well, all the interesting things you're doing now, could you give people a, a bit of a sense for the work that Tigas has already done in, in using some basic off-the-shelf machine learning stuff? Obviously, every call is transcribed. I imagine a lot of that is not human-driven. There's some sense of entity recognition to understand what calls are talking about, diarization, to understand who's saying what. But why don't you just walk through that full history, if you don't mind? Yeah, maybe I can roll that in, into a little bit into the life cycle of a transcript. Our calls are all conducted on Twilio. And so we get an audio file of the call right after it happens. And then we've explored various vendors over time. But right now we work with a vendor that takes that two-way phone conversation and does speech to text to automatically transcribes it. And then they have a human in the loop. And so There's an instant version that happens right away that if you're the investor who conducted the call, you get that right away. But then the version that goes live on the platform kind of forks off and has a little bit of a parallel path. So we do a couple things. We use an AWS API for doing entity recognition and linkage. So basically pulling out companies and products that are mentioned throughout the course of the conversation and then linking that back to the company record in our database. We then also do text-to-speech. One of the things you can do is listen to these calls in the Tegas platform as well, if you don't want to read them, because they're often pretty lengthy. And so there's the text-to-speech. And then I think what's really important is that there is both a human and an ML-aided compliance process that transcripts go through. So one of the really important things in the expert research industry is to make sure that no insider information is is, is uh, shared in these conversations. So the, the technical term is, what is it? material non-public information. And so we have a large team of compliance folks who are trained, led by a, a former SEC lawyer, to make anything that could potentially get an investor in trouble is, is scrubbed from transcripts before they go live on the platform. And that's done with a mix of the entity recognition. We have a few in-house models that flag parts of conversations that might be concerning. And then the human team follows up and, and does all that stuff before things go live on the platform. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. One of the issues I wonder about is in a lot of these calls, particularly if you're talking about some deep area of technical software or healthcare devices, you're going to have some very unique business specific entities that you need to understand either to make the company associations or to just like make the transcript make sense. Yep. What work have you guys done to deal with that issue to date, if anything, or, or do you sort of view it as not so much a problem? So I would say that's something on the list I would love to go deeper on that we just haven't up until now. So we're using an off-the-shelf AWS API for this that does perform a lot better on these technical entities and business names and I think a lot of the open source off-the-shelf stuff that we've looked at. But you're absolutely right that some of the topics of our conversations are 
very technical or very industry specific. Even just examples where products are confused for companies or products don't get labeled and you want to yeah. pull out like a, a, the, name, the name of a software product. I think we know that we could do better if we custom tuned an entity recognition model to our data because yeah. we have a lot of data and, and we have a lot of human annotations of things internally. Right. It just isn't something that we've had time to work on up until now. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So maybe to give people a bit of a sense, you guys have something like, is it 60,000 transcripts done and in the platform? Yeah. So it's roughly 60,000 transcripts that are available on the platform if you were to log in today. And we're adding them at something like most recently, like over 2,000 a month. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. As you think about the scale of that library and, and some of the things you're trying to do right now, like what are the what challenges are at the forefront of your mind, your team right now? Like what, what are you guys most focused on making the most use of that data? Yeah, so I think there are actually maybe to, for a little more context, it would be helpful with that. In addition to the historical expert transcripts business, over the last couple of years, we've done two additional acquisitions into the, the Tegas platform. So the first is a company called BAMSEC, which is the leading provider of SEC filings data. So SEC filings data are, you know, it's obviously all public, but the government Edgar website is a nightmare to work with. And, and BAMSEC grew up by scraping, collecting, making searchable and annotatable, like the full corpus of public SEC data. And then the second company is an acquisition we did almost a year ago is Canalyst. And Canalyst helps provide custom financial models of a business. So you think about a giant Excel spreadsheet that breaks down all of the cost and the revenue, et cetera, to build up to a final valuation number for a company. And we have something like over 4,000 proprietary company models with proprietary data behind them. So right. I bring that up because I think like, as we think about the AI stuff, they're really like two, two broad buckets. Like the first bucket is focused on the expert transcripts themselves, which is like extracting as much useful stuff from expert transcripts as possible. Because like yeah. right now, if you look at an expert transcript, like it's great, it's really high quality, it's comprehensive, but it's a giant wall of text. Like these are hour long conversations. I have never actually printed one out, but I think if you print one out, they're like probably 20 pages or something like that. Yeah, 20, so, 30 pages. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it's like a 20 or 30 page transcript and you might have a hundred of them on a company. So it's like just a giant mass of text. Right. And so there's a whole bucket of like things that we should, can and should and are starting to do around the transcripts themselves. And then the, the second bucket, I would put it in, I, I would put like connections across our different data sources. So how do we build experiences that connect and aggregate data across expert transcripts, um, with SEC filings about the same company or earnings and events call transcripts that management has done about the company? Or how do you link comments in an expert transcript to the more canonical authoritative time series data that might appear in a canalyst model? Sure. Um, and I think that's the holy grail in that like second bucket. So we've started at more in the first bucket, which is like, how do we make as much out of the expert transcripts as possible? And then we've longer term are starting to think about those connections between data sources. Yeah, totally. So bucket one, let's focus there first. And, and as you said, there's yep. so much to unpack. I know that you guys started to do some basic summarization to say, here's what was discussed in the transcript, which is, I think the first thing that anybody would do, seeing the LLM tech come out and then having the data set that you do have. But what else do you get most excited about? Like, what are those few features that you guys want to go add in the short term? So I started, I guess, at the end of January, which was a really fascinating time to start any new job doing yeah. doing ML work. But our philosophy was sort of like, let's start building the simplest, lowest hanging fruit stuff to have some quick wins and just start providing value right away. And so the first bucket, build things on top of expert transcripts is the simpler place to start. But even simpler than that is 
like what kinds of things can we extract from a single transcript that will be useful? So quickly we built, I would say two things, two things that that kind of fit that bill. The first was, as you mentioned, auto-generated summaries for a transcript. Again, so there's this like 20 page wall of text, like what is actually discussed in this conversation? And so we built that really quickly within like a couple of months on top of some of the OpenAI models, like an auto-generated summary that gives you a quick idea of like, hey, is it actually worth going deep and reading the rest of this transcript? And so right now it appears literally like right at the top of the transcript in the platform. I think we've just rolled out, including the summaries and email alerts to make those email alerts a lot more useful for things that are like in your watch list or something like that. So that was the first feature. But then the second feature, again, it was kind of geared at the same thing, which is like, how do we give you an idea of what transcripts you should spend your time on was basically to, to tag kind of a topic model or basically like tag a transcript with a set of topics that are discussed in the transcript. And so in some ways, it's a little bit of a similar concept to a summary, but underneath kind of the title of the transcript, you'll see a set of tags that tell you about the things that are discussed in that transcript. And so it's a little bit complementary to the summary if you're just looking at a single transcript. But where this becomes really useful is in collecting the set of transcripts about a company and helping you to search and filter more easily. The example I like to use for this is Amazon, right? So Amazon has a sprawling business, right? They have a third-party logistics business. They have their, their retail marketplace. They have AWS. But then even within AWS, they have data warehousing. They have cybersecurity. And there are 100 things about Amazon's business that I've left out. Yeah. And probably investors have talked about a lot of these things in all the transcripts that we have about Amazon. And so how do you... If you as an investor care about one specific thing, like what if you really want to go deep on AWS, these topic tags will allow you to do that in a way where you can sort of see the set of topics about all of the transcripts we have on Amazon. And you can select down to be like, I'm really interested in AWS or AWS data warehousing. Yeah. Or I don't believe we have this experience built right now, but it's something we want to do, which is to go cross company to say, I'm interested in this topic not just in the context of one specific company, but across all different companies. Help me search and, and isolate a set of transcripts around that. Yeah. And so those were the first couple things that we built because they were operating at the transcript level and helped us really, I think, drive a lot of value for customers. I mean, I know you're, you're a user. You can tell yeah. me. You can be honest. But like the summaries <laughs> product, we built a feedback mechanism in and people raved about it. That's, I think less to do with what we built and more to do with the fact that we just hadn't given people great tools for understanding this wall of text. And they were so happy that we were finally starting to do that with AI. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that like, I would take your idea a step further and say, hey, generating static summaries that are sort of this, the same for everybody is is helpful, as is the topic generation. Because to your point, like I want to look for specifically AWS or within Google, I want to talk about Google search or whatever it is. But I also like I think a lot of investors who are using the platform will come in with a thesis, right? Or, or some question they're trying to answer that's very targeted. So for example, uh, I, I might want to go see, you know, Datadog's very expensive, as is Splunk. Uh, what are the call transcripts that where people are talking about the issue of cost and comparing to other vendors? And it strikes me as something that you could easily allow people to semantically search for, not necessarily easily, but that feels something that's, that's accomplishable. And if you can do that, suddenly now it's not just like, hey, these are all AWS, there's 50 transcripts from the last three months, but here are the specific seven that actually talk about this one issue you're concerned with. Is that something as well that'd be interesting for you? You think that'd be easy, hard to build, or how would you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe like the answer to your question, there's sort of two facets to it, I guess. Like the, the first is, 
maybe customization. So when we thought about starting to build things, one approach to building things with these large language models is this batch, static, almost more like traditional ML approach or traditional NLP, like natural language processing approach, which is like you have pipelines, you push transcripts through pipelines, you extract information and you build features on top of that information. And that's very much the spirit in which like the topics product was built or even the summary product was built, this sort of like static pipeline paradigm. And that is useful. That's useful as like a step zero or a step one. But to your point, if you talk to customers and like we did talk to a lot of customers about summaries, for example, there's not a there's not like a one universal definition of what makes a good summary, right? right. So like so, some people wanted longer summaries. Some people wanted shorter summaries. Some people love them the way they are. Some people want bullet points. Some people want a bull case and a bear case. Like everyone wants something slightly different. And so a next potential step is to think about how do you let people customize some of these features instead of yeah. generating it in a one-time static way. And I think there are different ways you could think about doing that. You could imagine pre-calculating a handful of different settings and letting people choose between them. You could imagine trying to do some of it on the fly, like letting someone ask to regenerate a specific summary in a specific style that has potential latency issues. But yeah. if that's what someone really wants to do, they could do it. So so customization is kind of like one answer to your question. But then I think the other path is where you're asking kind of about almost like a semantic search chat application specifically. And that's yeah. something I think we're also actively working on and super interested in. So to your example of like, hey, I really care about Datadog and how it's doing in the context of some competitors or vendor selection processes having to do with, with Datadog. So right, right now we have search in the platform, but I would characterize it as it's pretty basic. It's traditional Boolean, Boolean keyword-based search, uh, which gets you somewhere. But I think like what's become possible, honestly, what's been happening in semantic search in the last handful of years, I think, but has really probably come to people's attention a lot more with all the chat GPT stuff has, I think, opened a lot of doors. So basically like the idea behind semantic search is that you, you take all your input data. So in our case, our transcripts, but even you could extend it to SEC filings and earnings events, any text data that you have, basically. And you come up with some strategy for breaking it up into chunks. You take those chunks and you pass them through. Today, it might be a large language model. Before last November, there would be other kinds of neural network models. And you get out basically a list of numbers that people call um, an embedding that represents the meaning of that chunk of text. And, and the idea is that once you have that embedding, other pieces of text that sort of mean the same thing are, are near that embedding vector in some notion of space. And so you chunk up your text, you get these vector embeddings, and then you store them in, in some kind of vector database, which is another thing that has exploded into everyone's consciousness in the last six months. But it's funny, these vector similarity searches, I've been using them for probably five or six years in different contexts. And Facebook had a popular open source project five or six years ago, Elasticsearch had plug-in support for this five or six years ago. I used to work in uh, fashion e-commerce and we, our version of this vector similarity search was to find visually similar sure. items of clothing because you can get embedding vectors that visually describe something in addition to kind of the text. But as these language models have evolved, vector databases have really exploded into consciousness as like a way to, to do this kind of semantic meaning-based comparison between pieces of text. And yeah. so... This is something we're working on literally right now, loading, you know, embedding all of our transcripts, storing them into a vector database so that you can then. So what happens then is you issue a more of a natural language query that's like, show me transcripts that are related to vendor selection processes that involve Datadog. And then you take that user query, you embed it. 
and then you pull up the list of pieces of transcripts that are most similar to that. And that allows you to zero in on the relevant parts of the transcript in a much better way than this combination of like Boolean search. Totally. And the other thing is that you can actually combine the two as well. So most of these newer vector databases will have what's called hybrid search. So the way to combine both that vector meaning-based thing as well as the keyword approach, and you can combine those two to get the highest performance for your specific use case. And so you're right, this is actually absolutely a thing we need to build, semantic search as its own feature. But then also, once you have that semantic search as a piece of your infrastructure, you can build interesting new things on top of it. Because the ingredient of here is like a query, give me the most relevant pieces of text to it, yeah. can then be input into all sorts of other experiences around chat or generated applications. Yeah, that, that's where I was going to go with it. What I get most excited about is the idea of creating like a, a project object and you add the relevant transcripts based on the semantic search that discuss the issues you're concerned with. And then what we would normally do manually is we'd say, okay, great, here are the dimensions on which I want to compare these vendors. Here are the calls on the x-axis where they're mentioned. And then how does each call rate each vendor across each dimension is the output. And now suddenly with the semantic understanding, you can actually do that automatically and say, hey, look, generally speaking, at the dimension of cost, people are talking about Datadog least positively and this other vendor most positively. And you can automatically generate all that. And so you can imagine some really interesting situations of fully automating market level analysis of any given company based on the transcripts we have. And then... If you can do that, there's a big incentive for people to actually upload transcripts that were done outside of the Tigas platform because you've done, you've added so much more value in, in just the analysis rather than what I think people typically look at the networks as, which is just like ways to connect with a large number of experts. Yeah. So it's funny, like one of our core values at Tigas is talking to customers. And I think we live that more than anywhere, anywhere I've ever worked before, actually. And so this was an interesting example where you, you brought up this idea in a previous conversation and it was not something I thought of, but I think is really interesting. So like when I think about chat, I think there's the, the use case of it's sort of the underlying semantic search corpus. Let's consider all transcripts. Like I want you to answer this question across all of the transcripts on the Tigas platform, no matter who, what company was the sort of main company a call was about. That's one use case. I think another is I would like to search and have a chat over the set of all transcripts about a specific company. But what you mentioned is even one layer more granular, which is I've identified this set of transcripts as particularly interesting to me for whatever reason, because the, the interviews were all done by a certain type of expert or after I've read them, these are the highest quality based on my criteria, or maybe these are just the calls that my firm did, and I only care about those. I don't care about the other ones. So how do I mark them or put them into, inside of some folder and then basically have a chat experience over all of those documents? That's eminently buildable, right? Like these are all just kind of different filters that you're running your search over, but I could see yeah. why that would be a really interesting uh, kind of product experience that we'd want to build. Yeah, be very, very cool. One thing we haven't really talked about, but I'd be interesting to is how you guys run your sourcing network and to what degree you find there might be value in automating outreach, automating vendor expert qualification with some of these like text-to-speech voice generators or, or, or AI agents over the phone. Have you guys thought about doing that or have you done any work there so far? I'm just curious what you're working on there. Yeah. So what excites me so much about Tegas as an ML person is that there really are so many interesting applications of, of ML and the new AI technologies. That was the reason I took this job in the first place. So we've all, we've been talking about the, this whole bucket of product features that we can build with ML on top of our data. And that's the place that we have started our focus and probably will continue because 
we're a software product company. That's, I think, like the core of, of what we want to do. But there are a ton of internal facing applications for, for this work. And historically, as we've grown and scaled the business, we've put a lot of human effort into a bunch of these things. So there, there are a couple areas. Like one is our operations area, as you mentioned. So the large group of folks that develop expertise in industries, like build out a network and actually are the, the middle folks arranging the calls between experts and, and financial advisors, financial analysts, and then also our compliance team. These are the folks that I mentioned earlier that help to make sure there's no sensitive information in our transcripts. And right now we have built some technology to help them, but I think there's a ton more that we could do, could do with ML. So on the, on the operations side, we haven't gone deep in building out a roadmap there. I think there's an element of, there's a lot of, of outreach that happens there, both on email and on the phone. And I hadn't actually thought about automating some of that stuff with LLMs. Obviously it's a possibility, but you you, you worry about the human touch and, and spam and what that looks like. So th- there's definitely an opportunity there, but we haven't, I would say like fully evaluated it. I think the bigger applications are more around search some of the same search things we were just talking about, actually, like mm. how do you enable our operations folks to find the right expert across our internal systems and our internal systems about experts? Like, because we have a lot of data about experts, that some that they've given us, some that we've sourced from other places. And how do we just make that search experience better? I think that's one. Another one we have talked about with some interested folks is like, how do we auto-generate biographies of, of experts? And right now we'd spend a lot of manual effort kind of writing biographies of experts to show to the, to our customers so that they can pick who's most relevant. Yeah. How could we auto-generate some of those biographies? There, there, are a lot, there are a lot of applications on the operations and the compliance side, honestly. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And I'm jumping around a bit. I, we, we covered your bucket one, which was transcripts. I, actually, there's one more thing I wanted to add on that, which is that, and we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth saying on, on, the, on the recording is, I find that when you are chatting with a document, in this case, a transcript, there's this interesting, like chat actually has a use case here. And a lot of people, I think, say, think like, oh, chat GPT, therefore everything's, everyone thinks chat is the right UI. But in this case, it actually has a use. I've found that if I put a transcript in a chat and I say, tell me what the key takeaways are, it gives me a very surprisingly like accurate, unbiased view of what the takeaways should be. Oftentimes when you're doing these calls, you come in with, with some sort of hypothesis as you would as an investor. And even unintentionally, you can be sort of biased or blind to certain things people say in the call that may, if you are a completely unbiased computer observer, uh, ultimately take away differently, right? You would take away a different set of conclusions. And I, I think a lot about in, in the Tegas case, even when you're reading the call transcripts, if you can just say, hey, here are my set of questions. And then when the response comes back, with the set of questions, you can sort of iteratively re- refine that. That seems like a very underappreciated and valuable thing that you guys could also go build. Not just generic chat across the platform, but chat with a specific document. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when we think about chat, right, obviously, like, we're not trying to solve open-ended chat across everything. And, and, I, and it's even, I don't know, some, chat can mean, to your point, can mean so many things and people have lots of different ideas about it. But really, like, when we think about it, it's, it's just a, it's a way to interact with the content on our platform, like in the specific context of one document or multiple documents, like how can you interact and get what you need from that document for people with really limited, honestly, like really limited time who in an ideal world, you spend 
deep concentrated time reading these 20 page documents to a certain point there's a, a limit to how much the human mind can can like digest and focus but given that really no one has the time to do that how can you interact with our content and get what you need out of our content right i think that's that's what we're what we need to do and to your point it's not just extracting a specific piece of information but maybe you want a different take on it so maybe you ask for a summary of a specific document but then maybe you ask for like give me the give me the bull case that this document makes give me the bear case that this document makes like yeah to be able to refine and ask the same thing multiple times i think could be really interesting totally i think about it in just how i work with some of the guys on my team you you say you want something and they come back and it fits your ask, but your actual intent, you realize was not aligned with what you said. And I think that it, it comes down to just humans have a sometimes a failure in articulating in a one shot go what they want in a way that the, that the other person can understand, which is fine in the situation where you have a chat interface and you can say you can sort of iteratively go through this alignment process to ultimately get through to what you want, right? Yeah, and 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 you can do it quickly, right? Because you're yeah. getting this stuff back really quickly, and then you see the response. You don't have to go send the intern away for another day before you get the next thing back. Like you get the answer right away. Uh, there's a lot of that in the investment business. Tegas has taken a lot away, but there's there's still a lot that exists. So okay, so we've covered bucket one, some of the internal operations. Let's go to your, your bucket two, which is the connections across data sources. What is front of mind there for you? I mean, I know you mentioned you made these two acquisitions, a lot of interesting data there. But yeah, just talk a bit about that. Yeah. So I think there are, there are a couple of different potential like avenues that we can think about there. One is maybe it's, it's more straightforward to describe, but maybe less straightforward to build, which is well, certainly less straightforward to build, which is like this kind of semantic search and chat experience, but built across all of these different data sources that we're talking about. So if you ask a question about a company, under the covers, we're searching and surfacing and generating an answer based off of what experts have said in the ex in relevant expert calls, what the CEO has said in an earnings call, what was disclosed in an SEC filing, or if you ask a quantitative question that we that we're intelligent enough to maybe pull out a number from an expert transcript, but to know that actually what we really should be doing is calling out to Canalyst API and pulling back an authoritative data set about this quantitative question and showing sure. it in the chat interface. And so I think that's in some sense, like kind of the holy grail, which is this, this interactive kind of chat experience over all of those data sources. And yeah. to a certain extent, parts of it are straightforward, like for the data sources that are, that are text-based, a lot of the same approaches we talked about with semantic search can work, right? You just It's just about indexing additional text sources. right? But then on the other hand, you're mixing different kinds of content, right? So SEC filings and analyst calls are in some ways, in some ways more authoritative than what an expert might say on an expert transcript, but I, I shouldn't say authoritative, but more, more official, a more official company statement about something versus what the opinion that an expert on a call is surfacing. Yeah. So how do you handle those two things in a synthesized response? And then the canalyst data is almost a different beast. And I think we're just, it's just emerging patterns to, to integrate APIs into chat experiences. So yeah. I don't know, it's probably March when OpenAI announced their kind of plugins and like plugin marketplace. Well, I mean, it was only a few weeks ago or maybe a month ago when they announced this full support for 
function calling inside yeah, of OpenAI's APIs. And then there are other Python frameworks that people build on that allow like calling external APIs and using the response inside of these large language models. But I'd say that's still very, it's very new, right? Integrating large language models is very new. And then integrating APIs into large language models is even newer than that. And so there are just a whole, a lot of challenges with that, but we're excited to start building because we have all those, all that relevant data and a lot of, I'd say, great use cases for, for that kind of cross data set chat. That, that's one. I think the other potentially interesting experience is more of like an inline, like navigational experience, I guess, where let's imagine you're, you're looking through an SEC filing in the Tegas platform and an analyst is asking a question about something. Like if we could be intelligent enough to provide a link at that point to say like the analyst is asking about Q3 projections for sales and gives you know, the CFO gives some sort of answer to it. If we could link you to relevant parts of an expert transcript that say like, here is where a former employee is talking about concerns about future sales, or here is where a current or former customer is talking about increasing problems with churn or something like that. Like totally. being able to then like jump you over to that relevant thing that you could read, I think would be, would be super, super powerful. Or same thing across to the catalyst data. If you're looking at a certain time series of catalyst data and you could identify relevant snippets of text that might be affecting that metric yeah. that you could jump people to. Like those kinds of experiences, we haven't gone very deep in thinking about how we might do that yet. And to be honest, it's probably very hard, but it would also be really useful and powerful for the user. And so there's yeah. a lot of incentive for us to, to build that. One of the things that I've seen work well, there's some tools that have been built to use GPT three and four for mind maps, where you ask the question and you get an answer, and then you want to ask a following question. So for example, you might say, I, I saw that the sales went down in this quarter. The, the model can then say, okay, in a situation where sales have dropped, what are hypothetical reasons for that? Then it'll generate more competition, degraded pricing, whatever. And then with that, then you could do the semantic search in the transcripts to figure out qualitatively, right? Yeah, that, that's super, super interesting. And I think gets to one of the key, like, UX issues and something we've been thinking about with these chat interfaces, which is like, you don't want to just give someone a blank box and it's like, type in this blank box and I will give you an answer and present you with another blank box. I think you want to both at the beginning, we thought more about this from the beginning standpoint, which is like in the box, right? Give someone great ideas about where to start. And then I think where you're getting at is like, based on the answer and where someone's going, give me a, a set of, of next really relevant questions that I can right. go to, to continue my research. And that's a super, yeah, that's a super, super interesting angle. Like I asked a question, we, you surfaced some results based on that question, based on that answer, like here are five different follow-up questions or different things that I could explore for you. That would be really interesting. Yeah, that would be super, super powerful. The place we spent more time thinking now is sort of at the beginning of the process, which is, and this is something I think we're hoping we have in the beta in a, within a couple months, which is, let's say I, I'm, I'm starting to get up to speed on a company. I'll just use, I'll use Snowflake as my canonical example again. Sure. So if we looking across our, our corpus of transcripts about Snowflake, like what are the most common or most important questions that investors have been asking about Snowflake, right? Mm -hmm. So like, what are the, what are the top five questions that we can pull out of transcripts that investors have been asking. And that should give you an idea of what are roughly maybe the five most important diligence questions that you should wrap your mind around as you start to think about Snowflake. And then in the context of like 
you're on Snowflake's company page, you, you pop open a chat experience, like we can populate that with, hey, these are the five most important research questions that people should come to grips with about Snowflake and populate that as a place to start your journey if you don't yeah. know otherwise. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it makes so much sense. So it's a good transition. So we've talked about a ton of different things that you guys are going to go build. Now I want to go to the, how are you going to do that? Because I think what everyone struggles with in, in the investing seat, in the entrepreneurial seat, in this new world of AI is to whom will value accrue. It is very clear that a lot of value will accrue to the users of the Tegas platform and Tegas itself. But are there vendors that other than like, okay, sure, you're going to call the OpenAI API, fine. But like, is there a set of tools that you guys are going to want to buy off the shelf that you don't really want to build internally that will let you achieve what you're trying to do here more quickly? Or how do you think about that that build versus buy decision? Yeah, that's a great question. So thinking about the tools or the vendor ecosystem around some of this stuff. Yeah, I think the first thing is around large language model vendors generally. And I think I suspect our experience is probably pretty similar to what's happening with a lot of folks right now, which is that OpenAI's APIs work really well and are very easy to get up to speed on. And so I think that's the place that a lot of folks will start. But I think long term, that's going to change for a handful of reasons. Like first, I think other vendors and other open source models are rapidly going to catch up. And, and maybe better at different things than OpenAI is better at. And then the second thing is just this long-term trend of like, no one, no technologist likes having lock-in to one specific like closed source thing, right? Yeah. So it would be irresponsible for me a year from now or two years from now to only have ever thought about or built or evaluated on top of, on top of OpenAI. It might, it might right. be fine to start because you're trying to go fast, but, but down the road, that's not going to be the case. And so I think you'll see people starting to explore other providers, I think Anthropic is probably the the leading the leading one next to OpenAI at this point. Their models are the, the Claude family of models. Yeah, I think it remains to be seen how Google's APIs will kind of catch up. But you'll see, I think, people exploring other closed source LLM vendors. But then that leads to a potentially a, a layer that that we've seen emerging among startups, which is like sort of well startups and cloud vendors, which is an abstraction layer that sits on top of those LLM vendors that you that you can call that makes it easier to swap them out on the back end. So I believe AWS announced a process a product offering like this. I'm sure Azure has one and there there're probably 12 companies in Y Combinator that do this basically, which is like offer an intermediate layer uniform API that sits on top of the language model vendors. And I could see utility in something like that for sure. Whether and how much you want to pay for something like that I think remains an open question. But then there's the open source model and ecosystem. I mean, so yeah, we're, we're recording this the day after Meta released Llama 2, which is, I think, also kind of lighting the internet on fire. Some of, some of the stuff, so the big, the big news about Llama 2 is that it's commercially licensed. And from some of the, at least the early reading I've done, people are saying that it's, it, that it appears to be kind of a chat GPT quality open source model. Yeah, and, for 3.5. And whether, whether, yeah, yes. And whether it's this one or another open source one that comes out soon, like, I thought by the end of the year, there would be an open source back in, I think, March, I said, like, there would be a, a a chat GPT quality, fully open source, commercially licensed model by the end of the year. It's only July. I, I mean, I, so we're either there or we're going to be there. And I think, like, there's a lot that's very attractive about about wanting to either bring the open source stat, open source models and deploy it yourself or work with a third party vendor like Hugging Face or... Yeah. 
or an AWS offering where it's the open source model, but they're hosting it for you. And I think there are a couple of reasons why you would want to do that. Like one is I'd say kind of like throughput. So one of the one of the challenges we had we've had so far building on top of OpenAI with some of these use cases is just how quickly you can pump data through OpenAI with their with their limits. And when you have a large corpus of documents and you want to pump them through to do pump them through a set of prompts to do entity recognition or topics or summary generation, and then you want to store those results offline, like that backfill process, it's hard to work around uh, rate limits and it can take a long time working with your rate limits. And yeah. you can, can get rate limit increases, but it's hard and it's still very hard to get in touch with a human at OpenAI. And so there's just certain things where if I had this running in my own data center and I could just like boot up another worker and pump things through quickly and then boot it down, there's a lot that's really, really attractive about that. And then I think the second thing is kind of know is stability and knowing what you're getting. Like if you deploy an open source model, what you've deployed and that it's going to be the same thing over time. One of the interesting things I actually just read this morning about OpenAI's models is that they're changing over time in, in somewhat unexpected ways. There was just a, a research paper about this um, that came out this morning that compared um, OpenAI model performance from like March until the middle of July on a couple of different tasks. And they were uh, pretty dramatic changes in performance. Now, what's less important is that like it changed drastically on specific things and more just that you don't really know what changed between those versions because OpenAI is still this black box. So right. I'm sure there are good reasons for this, right? Like they changed they changed some of the data that went into it or they optimized for something different. And so yeah. there was a good reason for it to change. But behind the scenes, if you're a user of those models, how do you understand what unexpected consequences might happen? Totally. And, um, and, and for you that... guys, I was going to say in the situation where you're like comparing the output of, in the case we had of, of the, the grid where you have multiple questions across multiple transcripts, if you've asked those questions with a prior version of a model and the new version of the model it answers the questions in a way that might characterize the results differently, like you'd want to know that or at least manage around that. Yeah. It's really hard to with those models. Yeah, and that gets to another set of like tools and vendors that I think are really interesting that are emerging, and th those are sort of around like exactly what you said, like vendors that will let you do kind of like experiment management, experimentation management, where you can you can have a set of prompts, you can have a grid of models, whether it's the same provider in different versions or different providers, and evaluate the same thing through those different models. And you can have humans start to look at that stuff. You can collaborate with your team. There are a number of vendors that are doing that. And I think that for sure is going to be important. But then also kind of like observability and monitoring. Like if you have something running in the background against a model, like how are you logging that? How are you storing inputs and outputs? Like how do you get a human to look at some percentage of those outputs to make sure things are okay? Like almost... ML ops is what you would call that instead yeah. of like the north. So there, there's like a whole ecosystem of things around experiment management and ML ops that those versions of those things exist for more traditional ML. And all the vendors that are, have built those things are now trying to build them for LLMs and new LLM specific vendors are coming out. So it's, I mean, it's crazy how fast everything is moving. There is a real need for all these things, but which one you would bet on or whether you would bet on an As existing an vendor just, just sure. evolving. That's where I think it gets really hard. Um, yeah. And well, then, I'd love to have a conversation, a follow-up in about three months once you've banged your head into this problem and inevitably run into some issues and see where yeah. your mind is. Because I bet that you'll say, hey, like, there's this new vendor I saw and they really solved this super annoying pain point of uh, how do I use, for example, the chat data that you're then going to collect from all these very interesting 
conversations with investors on how do I then use that to improve the model I have so that the quality of response is better or, or it's better fine-tuned to the data that I have in the Tikus platform. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like in the same, like almost exactly the same thread of stuff goes through vector databases, right? Like they are becoming an essential infrastructure component. And a lot of funding has gone into these different uh, vector database vendors and they built great stuff. But like, will those continue to exist as standalone vendors or already like Databricks announced recently that they're building a vector database into their platform? I mean, Postgres Um, has one there too. Postgres has one that will work for certain use cases. Elasticsearch has had plugin support for it. So like, will that continue to exist as a standalone thing or will it get bundled into other offerings in the future? I think kind of remains an open question. Yeah, it's it's a crazy but fun time to be building this stuff right now. Yeah, yeah. Maybe one last question for you. What is the unifying goal across Tegas that you're trying to achieve? And the reason I ask that is, you could say it's have people spend more time on the platform, have it be more valuable to spend more money on it, save cost internally. There are a lot of things you could be trying to achieve, but what, what is that overarching thing? The way I would phrase it is making our data as valuable as possible to our customers, which then flows through to keeping them as engaged as possible with our platform, right? Like I think part of our thesis today is that we have so much valuable data in the platform and we're not doing a great job of of like surfacing that and helping you as an investor see or find the nuggets that are useful to you. And if we could do that in a better, like more automated way, that would bring people into the platform regularly. What we want is a world where our customers are using Tegas every day for their research process, right? Like you, where you log in in the morning, you log out at the end of the day and you feel like, hey, this is really an essential part of, this is really an essential part of my work, right? Like you'd have to pry this out of my cold dead hands. Like that our founders talk about repeatedly, like we want to build and what is the phrasing? And over my dead body product, where like when your boss comes and says they want to take away the budget for it, you're like, over my over my dead body, like I'd rather not have my job. And I think to do that, right, like we need to be making our data, all of the data across all the different data sources as valuable to people as possible and giving them the insights and giving them reasons to come back for their research. So that that's kind of, I think, my unifying thread that goes through all of it. Yeah. Well, what's exciting about it is that I think you guys could actually get there. And, and look, in many ways, Tegas is already there today in, in, in a lot of specific functions in the investment business. It's very well respected and, and loved by by users, including myself. So it's going to be an exciting next next couple of years, but you're going to have a full a full plate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I'm happy that I, I don't want a job that is boring. And this is definitely, definitely not a job that is boring. So. No, no, no. You got lucky on the, the timing of this job choice. Maybe that was all by design, but exciting nonetheless. Uh, I'm not that good at predicting the future. (laughs) (laughs) Well, better be lucky than good. But Michelangelo, this was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks. Yeah, I really enjoyed it.